It's good to have you here. My name is Luke. I don't think I've met everybody. <clears throat> if you have a Bible or an app, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians today. 2 Corinthians, we are in the tailing two weeks of our series on how to grow as a disciple. It's discipleship for normal people. And uh, I, am, I am encouraged by how the Lord speaks to us today through 2 Corinthians. And while you're turning there, there is a legend. It's one of those legends. I'm not quite sure where it came from. And when I researched it, I don't think anyone's sure where it came from. But we're all sure it's true. <laughs> and the legend is that back in the day when Vikings were being evangelized by some of the earlier missionaries and there came time for baptism, the Vikings would always go down into the water, but they would always keep one arm up with their sword so that it wouldn't get wet. And this is because Vikings knew two things. One, whatever went into the water only to come back up belonged to Jesus forever. Two, there was more killing that had to be done, right? So I've heard this for different armies, Vikings, but it's probably some myth and probably some reality. The, the thing is, is we all still do this today, it's just we do it with our wallets. Here, here's the thing, I'm going to come after your money today, okay? I'm going to tell you straight out, but probably not the way you think. I was just telling Mark, I, I actually struggle teaching on the subject and preaching on the subject of money for different reasons, and you might struggle listening to it. Um, first of all, I'm a little bored and tired of the, the public optics of what the city might even think that we talk about on a weekly basis, which is probably money or brimstone. Never seen a brimstone, never said the word brimstone up here, right? But I think if you were to just cruise into your average Knoxvillian and ask them what they thought happened in a church culture, they probably are thinking right now that I'm talking to you about money, right? That the whole hope is that you would give enough money to maybe buy me some more jewelry or a white tiger or a private plane or something like that, which I don't want a private plane. Um, the second thing is, however, is I realize people come into a service like this, a gathering, with, with a subtle hope that they're going to hear something encouraging. I think all of you probably wanted that, wanted to be encouraged before you left and got back in your car, and maybe as soon as you hear the word money, you regret that you even came, right? I understand that that's how it is, but I, I do think that my struggle is misspent, and I think maybe your struggle hearing it is probably misspent, because there is freedom. And I, I'm sure a lot of you even have question marks on how to handle money, and we're gonna get into some real deep, tangible, specific applications today. I also think that my struggle is probably misspent because it wasn't a struggle for Christ. I mean, if you were to take the parables and look at them, just line them all up, 40% of Jesus' taught parables deal with money, 40%. If you were to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and stick them in a blender, mix it all up, and pour it out, 10% of it, 10% of the Gospels deal with money. If you were to do that with the whole Bible, 2,000 scriptures, 2,000 passages deal with money. The truth is, is I don't hit it enough. But I want you to know I'm super patient with this. I want you to write your questions down. I, I want you to feel free to text them. You could text them to our text line. You could email them. You could just walk right up and talk to me about it afterwards if you want. I understand the controversiality of this. But I will say this definitively. Discipleship that does not touch the wallet is not Christian discipleship. It's not. Managing our money, it will build a robust disciple in us. And I love you, and I love this city, and I love Jesus, so I'd like to look at stewarding money today. And no, we're not taking a special offering today. 
So if you look at 2 Corinthians, that's going to be the passage that we're going to anchor in. And it's going to do most of the heavy lifting, but we are going to pop into a couple other passages just for a moment. But I want to lead off and just read the first seven verses of chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 7. This is actually the third letter that Paul wrote to this church, but it's the second one we have in our word. And he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay, let's pause right there. We're, we're catching Paul at a moment that could have just as easily have happened here last week or in any church really in the 21st century. The backstory is as Corinth is a unique church, this church he's writing to. Um, they were a little bit more maybe bulletproof to recessions in the area. They're more on the manicured side of the tracks and, you know, they, they heard about the issues that were going on in Judea. Judea was a Jewish church. They were having it pretty hard financially. And so Corinth did a pledge, basically. We're going to give this much money because they, they, they were provoked by the fact, and, and, and surely they should have been. They're Christians now, this church. And so they're actually in the same family as the Jewish brothers and sisters a long way away. Different people, different cultures, same church. Now, what happened is this news got out that this Corinthian church had pledged so well, and so now other churches were inspired, and then they started jumping in, one of them Macedonia. Okay? Macedonia is actually not a city, nor is it really a church church. These are the, the churches that would have fit in Macedonia. You have Philippi there, Thessalonica would be there, Berea would be there, but they heard about Corinth, and they said, we're going to jump in then. Now, here's what's interesting about our passage, right? Paul is encouraging Corinth to finish what they had already pledged to do because it was starting to look like they were going to jump out on the check. It was starting to look like it was just a pledge by word only and they weren't actually going to give anything. And we know this by verse 11, which we haven't read yet. But in verse 11, Paul says, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Basically, finish the job. Finish the job. So Paul is after their money, but he's actually after quite a bit more than their money, quite a bit more. You know, I get to this point in this passage, and as I read it, I realize I can be tempted to act a little bit more Corinthian than Macedonian when it comes to finances. I, I think there's probably a Corinthian in all of us, really. Paused as we're looking through our banking app, just maybe saying to ourselves, maybe I won't. Maybe I won't give to this missionary, this church, this thing, whatever. Just maybe I won't. I think whenever we set out to click give or write the check or pledge the amount or partner with the campus ministry or the missionary or give a vehicle or donate Bitcoin or land or a fund of some kind, whatever it is, we run through a logical diagnostic in our head, and it is logical. It starts off with, can I afford it? 
right? I mean, I'll obviously have to say no to things. Am I okay with that? What will my gift be used for? Will it be used well? Who says? Do I get a say? Shouldn't I pay off my debt instead? I mean, God doesn't want me to be in debt. Should I get out of debt first? Does it all go to the church? Which church? Who says? What about the percentage? Two, 10, 20? Who says? You see, the Corinthian rolls through this logical diagnostic and just gets to the place of saying, "Ah, well, maybe not. And let me tell you, the Corinthian always has a great reason. Always. Always has a great excuse. Financial stewardship is unique among all the stewardship because it offers us this unique equation that refuses to be balanced. We're always faced with not enough. Always. I mean, that's why your parents and your grandparents would always say, hey, money doesn't grow on trees, right? I mean, here's, here is an equation I worked out, and I brought it before some of the, the brighter math geniuses. Can we put that equation up on the screen? I think you guys will agree. Paycheck minus expenditures equals not much, right? Is that true for everyone? Check my math on that. I think it's legit. Not much. And I know the income gradient doesn't even matter. I was telling Kevin earlier, back in 1991, I remember reading the news, not on an app, of course, because it was 1991. So it's very likely, because I was lazy, I heard the news from somebody who read the news. But the news was this. They were increasing minimum wage by 25%. This is what this meant for me. It was going from $3.80 to $4.25. And I thought, dang, (laughs) well, I could finally afford to supersize the number two at Whataburger now, right? I was really excited to get 19 more fries and seven more ounces of cherry Coke. But I didn't even get to spend it on that because I found out even at that young age, which you guys already know, and that is when the pay goes up, the expenditures follow. It's always not much left. The truth is, is it's the not much leftness of our money that brings value to our stewardship. Listen, if money did grow on trees, you certainly couldn't worship with it, could you? You couldn't. Not anymore. So Paul actually brings us a new equation, one that can only be balanced by the gospel itself. And I find it fascinating. This is how he says it, and it's in verse 2. You can go back and look at it if you want. It says, affliction plus poverty plus joy equals sacrificial generosity. That's what he's talking about. The Macedonians had heavy affliction, deep poverty, a joy that was afforded them by the news of the gospel, and they had this incredible generosity that was cranked out. So what I'd like to do, and I'm going to do it quickly because I have seven planks. We did this last week with work and how to steward our labor and our employment and our work. What I'd like to do is maybe pull up some of the old planks of a bad theology on money and lay down some new ones as we stand on a good gospel-saturated theology of finances and just how to manage them. I think it's important to look at it that way. So plank one, generous doesn't mean a bunch of money but a bunch of sacrifice. How did the Macedonians pull this off, by the way, this incredible giving? Oh, he says, the very first thing he says, he does it by God's grace. They do it by God's grace. They saw money through a new set of gospel glasses. You could look at it that way, where they were born again because of God's grace, and everything they saw was colored, tinted by the fact that God has done something beautiful for them. It changed the way they saw their job, their time, their family, and even their money. See, there's starting to be a differential between the Macedonians and the Corinthians, right? The Macedonians are saying, where do we sign up? 
Don't hold me back. Don't rob me now. I'm begging you. Give me an opportunity to give. Where do I sign up? The Corinthian is saying, maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, enough to provoke a letter from Paul that says, maybe you could finish what you started, guys. And here's probably the most common objection that I hear over the last 25 years of doing what I do now, and that is, Luke, I just don't have enough. And that's where some of you are landing right now. You were thinking it even before I got to this point, right? I just don't have enough. But if that is true, if that is true, then God has failed you. God has failed by asking you to be obedient when he has made it impossible for you to be obedient, which means he's failed. I don't think that's true. You see, our stewardship reveals our theology. We said this last week, right? How we steward, last week it was our job, the week before that was our ambitions, how we steward these things reveals how we see God, and we've always said all year and last year, how we see God is the most important thing about us. Listen, if you struggle with that, that I don't have enough, if that's something that's rattling around, what you're really saying is that you would be a better manager if God wasn't such a crummy owner. Maybe when God improves your situation, then and only then will you be allowed to be a good steward. I'd like to push on that a little bit, okay? Second plank I'd like to lay down. Generosity is not congruent with wealth. In other words, wealth does not make one generous, okay? Christians that gave during the Great Depression gave an average of 3.3%. This is what this means. It doesn't mean all Christians averaged together gave 3.3 because there were a lot of Christians that did not give during the Great Depression. The ones who did give, all of their gifts averaged to be 3.3% per giver. Today it's 2.5. 2.5. But imagine that, 3.3. They're all living in cardboard, six family members in one room, eating celery soup, crazy stuff that we read about and we're like, wow, it must have been really difficult back then and they're out giving us today. It's obvious that money does not make us generous. And we even get this from the scriptures. Jesus himself speaks the exact same thing. In Luke 21, he says this. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their, what, abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So generosity has to be measured by something other than how many zeros are on the check. I think we throw the word around generous around so much that we have maybe confused it with just someone that gives a lot. That's not necessarily the truth. In fact, the LA Times released a study here recently showing, and they measured this in last year, the top 10 most charitable gifts given last year. None of them were to a church, by the way. The top 10 charitable gifts equaled $9.3 billion. That's an amazing amount of money when you really think about it. But when you combine the net worth of all of those donors, it was just around 2% of their overall net worth. The widow still wins. Amazing. That when you stack the widow next to Bill Gates, who is the lead giver, the widow wins. She's the most generous. She's the most generous. Plank number three. Sacrificial giving is measured by the deficit that's felt. All right? That felt, that felt lack Listen, I've heard really good leaders push people towards a definitive 10% tithe. Really good leaders. They'll even use phrases like, that needs to be the floor, not the ceiling. I'm sure you've heard it if you've grown up in the church at all. But listen, if it was, if 10% tithe, and and I'm not convinced that the Bible teaches that, by the way, and we don't have time to go into why I don't see the Bible teach that. I'm free to talk to you about it later. But if it were, it'd just be a tax. 
But if there were a 10% flat tax on Christians, then sacrificial generosity would suddenly be disintegrated. It would detach the disciples' growth from their wallet. Honestly, it would probably be easier for churches if there was a flat tax. And here's the odd thing. I think the average believer would probably prefer it. Probably prefer having that ability to be thoughtless with how we give. And I understand the attraction towards 10%. I do. I mean, just remember, if the average giver sits at 2.5, a tithing church would increase by 400%. That's a big boost in your budget right there. And I'm convinced this is, I'm convinced that this is probably why the Mormon church is so wealthy. They're they are sitting right now, their reserves right now is $100 billion. That's three times the Catholic church to put that in context. $100 billion. But this is why it is, because financial obedience is mandated. They have a tax. But ultimately, if we did something like that, it would allow you and me to give thoughtlessly without contending with our very own hearts. And whatever we do thoughtlessly can't really be worship, can it? It can't. And it would also decimate the impoverished who can't give anywhere close to 10%. It would leave the wealthy very unchanged in how they handled their money. So what Paul is going to do is he leads the Corinthian church to look at their treasure, not as a Corinthian, but as a Macedonian, one who has been altered at a very core level by the truth of the gospel. Plank four, wealth is what was gifted to us. Poverty is what Jesus took to himself. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians. We're going to go back and jump into verse eight. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's a powerful statement right there, and that's what balances our equation of not much leftness. That's what balances it right there. We just simply give like our God gives. We take our affliction and our neediness, and our struggle, and the abundant joy that has been bestowed upon us because of what God has done, and it cranks out this earth-shaking generosity. What's fascinating about what Paul is saying here is he gives us this odd picture of God becoming poor, right? And I know you caught it. Charlie did a great job of leading us through this. How would God become poor? I mean, he starts by incarnating, by becoming man. He accumulates mankind. He is 100% God, but he accumulates 100% humanity. And then he even goes further, and he dies, which accumulates shame. I mean, our wealth in the kingdom is only what it is, and it's only possible through Jesus who impoverished himself. This is what we get out of Philippians 2. If you have a Bible, you can go there too. It will be real quick. I'm just going to jump in it and jump back out. Philippians 2, it's another passage that we've read a bunch. You probably grew up with it. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a powerful passage because it shows this progression of God stooping and vacating. He keeps declining, emptying himself, not giving just a portion of himself, but vacating all of himself. Let me ask you a question. When you think of giving, you're shouldered with the, with the budget in front of you, banking app open. 
When you think about giving, do you think of Jesus? So we just have to come up with better diagnostic questions, that's all. We have to come up with better questions or we won't grow. You just won't grow. If the gospel's not shaping your financial generosity, you cannot grow, friend. Listen, I think some of you need to hear this, by the way, right? Because you do a lot of things well. You, do, you steward a lot of things properly. And, and you think a lot of things rightly. But you have refused to give and submit your funds to the Lord. It's got a tight grip on you. It's become a little Jesus. It's too hard for you to put down. If that's you, you will not grow. You could, you could say goodbye to that. You've hit your ceiling. You've probably hit as far as you're going to hit as far as growth and change. I mean, this is such a big deal to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. These Macedonians, they're not superhumans. <laughs> they didn't get anything special that we didn't get, right? It's just that the gospel has led them from a posture of hoarding to a place where they're begging to give. Can you see why Paul was after their money, the Corinthian church? It's not to get rich. He's trying to show the church they're already rich. That's what he's going through all this trouble to do. Now what I want to do is I'm, I want to try to make this as applicable as possible to today. So the last one, two, three planks. I've got three planks left, just so you know where we're going. What I'd like to do is maybe take these timeless principles out of 2 Corinthians and pull them into 2023, okay? So I just want you to imagine Paul walking around with body odor and flip-flops, no cell phone, you know, just old time but those principles that he is installing in the early church, they work for us every day today if we just care to bring them here. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians. You can flip over to 1 Corinthians. It's going to be a helpful passage as well. Actually, the same church. He's talking to the same church. And he says this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. That's a fascinating passage. Plank five, financial stewardship is timely and regular. That's what we're picking up in this passage. He says on the first day of every week, that's patterned, right? That's regular. And then he says set aside as he may prosper. That's timeliness. He's talking about how frequency matters here. And it does. Now, this doesn't mean weekly. It did for them. It doesn't for us. I doubt very many people in this room would get paid weekly, right? Probably twice a month or a month. Some of you quarterly. Some of you a little bit more hit or miss than even that. The point is, and the principle applied today, is that generosity always follows an increase. You increase, you're generous, right? That's, that's the, the one-two punch here. This is one interesting way I'm starting to see this applied today that I think could be helpful for us in 2023 where it might not have made sense even 20 years ago. If you've noticed, around 2019, 2020 or so, there was a giant pop in what is called retail investing. Right? That's when many of you, you stuck an app on your phone, like M1 or Robinhood or Coinbase, where you're able to, it, it, it gamifies our investments. You could buy crypto, you can buy a fund, you can buy all kinds of things, and it made it so easy that even a baboon like me can sign up and within five minutes have invested money in various directions. But one of the things it also did is it provoked a ton of questions out of thin air that didn't exist, but these questions kind of did. In the years past, I would hear about this as a younger man. I'd hear people ponder this question out loud. Now we're hearing it in mass, and that's when does somebody give off of their investments, right? As generations are moving forward, we have more and more, quote-unquote, retail investors. When do you give off of that, right? Because if you invest 100 bucks in a stock, 
and it swells and goes up. Is that when you give off of it? How do you know? How do you know when it's at the very top? If you do, I would like to know, right? I mean, some stocks move a little bit more volatilely than, than others, right? Any crypto guys in here? You love it, right? It's a fun game, right? To see it go all the way up and then all the way down and then all the way back up again. How do you know when to get rid of money? How do you know when to do it? You know, I think some of the financial experts that love Jesus are talking about the best time to do it being tax time, and this is why you have realized gains at that point. Anything that happens on that stock before you, before you dump it is an unrealized gain because you haven't gained on it. It's unrealized. But once you have sold it, it becomes realized. Well, the best time to see how that has worked for you is just to look at the statement at tax time. That's when the government sees what you have gained. That's when your CPA sees what you've gained. That's when you see what you have gained. That's what the website is telling you've gained. That is probably, in a lot of experts' opinion, and I happen to agree, the best time to just be generous with that, with that disbursement or dividends or realized gain, if that makes any sense. I think that's just one way that we can drag a timeless principle into the 21st century. Whenever we pay Caesar our realized gains, we steward our means towards the kingdom. But regularity is valuable here. That's what he's getting after, right? And regularity is is, is valuable for one reason, and that's because we are regularly having to say no to the flesh. We're regularly having to say no to one thing and yes to the other, which leads us to plank six. Plank six, you cannot give sacrificially without saying no to other things. You want to know why it's hard to say no to things? Because sacrifice feels sacrificial. (laughs) We're not getting things that we could easily afford. It means being able to afford something like a cruise and saying no to that and getting a road trip. It's being able to afford seven streaming services and just doing three instead. It means getting used instead of new. It means no guacamole. It's just sacrificial, right? And this is how you know. This is how you know when you've arrived at the place of sacrifice. You'll know. You'll just know because you feel the loss. Real talk If you cannot list the things that you'd like to have and could afford, but things that you've given up for the sake of the gospel, you've not been giving sacrificially. If you can't make a list of the things that you could easily afford, but you've given up because you want to see the gospel spread, you have not been giving sacrificially. At that point, again, can we call it worship? I don't think we can. In fact, there's this fascinating passage that struck me as a younger believer in 2 Samuel 24. We'll put it up on the screen. Don't turn there got King David, and he's about to build an altar for a sacrifice to the Lord. And he happens to be on a patch of land that doesn't belong to him. belongs to this other guy, Runa. And this guy loves the king, loves God. He's all on board. He is Team David. And he's like, listen, David, you could use this land. You could take my oxen. You could take that wood. You name it, it's yours. I'll fall into line. You just name it, right? Uber host. And this is what David says to him. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that has cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. It can't be worship. It can't be worship if there was no sacrifice involved. You can tell I'm trying to get as specific as possible. I'm going to get a little bit more specific, okay? Where does the money go? As you grow as a steward, where exactly does the money go? For this, I'm going to go to Malachi. This is traditionally where pastors start whenever they talk about financial generosity. 
I'm landing here, and I'm probably not going to preach it like you think I'm going to preach it, okay? It says this in Malachi 3.8. I'm going to just do 3.8 and 10, not 3.9 and 10. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And then he says in verse 10, in your tithes and contributions, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Plank seven, our last plank. God's treasure should be placed abundantly where you are connected and resourced. Abundantly. I'm gonna use that word and I'm not gonna go beyond that word. Abundantly where you are connected and resourced. See, when Malachi was alive and speaking these words out into the ether, God's people were connected to each other and they were connected to God through the temple and its workers. The temple and its workers, right? The temple was just a place of benevolence, and it was a place of connecting people, it was a place of worship, it was a place of meeting needs. In fact, the storehouses that are mentioned here, those are something that were built later on by King Hezekiah into the side of the temple that did nothing more than just hold treasure. It was a bank vault, basically, right? And God is telling them in that moment to bring their full tithe, full, their full tithe to the place where it would support God's workers and God's work. Now, this passage has been used by many, many, many really good leaders to say that the local church is the storehouse for the full tithe. And as much as I want to agree with them, I also want to honor the text. That's not exactly what's happening right here. Okay? It does say bring the full tithe into the temple. But the temple is no longer made of limestone but living stones. Right? Again, we have gospel hindsight when we read passages like this, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house. This is supposed to evoke images of the temple. Built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we understand this, right? When you zoom out from the Bible and you look at the biblical architecture of how God dwells with his people, you see God dwelling with his people in a garden. Later on, fast forward, you see God dwelling with his people in a tabernacle. Fast forward, dwells with his people in a temple. Then God dwells with his people in the person of Jesus, and then God dwells with his people with his spirit. The church is the better temple. Okay? Now this is one of the reasons this passage is difficult for us today in 2023 where it wouldn't have been 200 years ago. You see, we saw something begin in the 20th century that did not exist beforehand, and that is the work of the parachurch ministry. There wasn't a whole lot of parachurch activity going on in the 1800s, the 1700s. And if you don't know what a parachurch organization is, that's fine. It's just something like a prison ministry doing a really good job or a good campus ministry or a ministry that works with refugees or a ministry that works with single moms. They are just great works of God meant to walk alongside a fragmented church. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because a church of 4,000, well, they could do quite a bit. They could point that gun in one direction. They could change a prison. They could change an entire college campus. They could, they could really leverage a lot of weight. But if you take 40 churches of 100 people, ah, eh, not so much. Not so much. The math is the same, and it's totally different all at the same time. Parachurch ministry fills in the gaps where the church cannot. Now, they're not churches, and the healthier ones understand that. 
And some are doing really cool things that, frankly, we're not going to be able to pull off. Not at this size, and maybe not at any size. And whenever we find good parachurch groups, entities, we jump behind them, we throw our weight around behind them. That's what kin is. We do everything we can with kin. That's a parachurch organization. Leaders Collective, Acts 29, the ELIC, people launching. Even some of your missional communities have found a nonprofit and you've thrown substantial weight behind it. Okay, these are all important. But, capital B, but, and I'm going to say this twice, starving the local church in order to primarily finance parachurch ministry might be what God is calling theft in this case. Say it again. Starving the local church in order to primarily finance the parachurch ministry might, might be what God is calling theft in this case. Because the parachurch ministry is not directly responsible for you. Right? Ken does not shepherd my soul. Uh, the ELIC is not my resource center. It's not where I go to grow. They don't ask me about my wife. They're not holding me accountable to the very things that the Word is teaching. They're not storehouses, as Malachi had in mind here. Again, I'm doing the best I can to just give you the Scriptures and try to drag a timeless principle into a very time-bound application. And I'm a guy that worked for a parachurch ministry for 12 years, and I am all for them, and I am not against them. But in this passage, God is concerned for the proper funding of his ministers, gathered activities, the partnered, the needy, the marginalized, and that immediate locale as seen by fit by the local leadership. And I I find this falls well within what we believe the scripture says about gospel expansion too. At Legacy, we have always believed that the scripture shows God's primary design in gospel expansion to be the local church. We love and support, substantially support, parachurch activity. That is not shown to be God's primary strategy. It's a secondary strategy. God's primary strategy is the healthy church that is planting healthy churches that is planting healthy churches. Again, feel free to email me later if you need clarity on this. I could be a little bit more clear maybe. When you give, it's important to give widely, as widely as you want, but in proportion to what God has in mind with his scriptures. And I'd be hesitant to teach more specifically than just the word abundantly. I think I might be getting out of bounds if I go any further on that. I will tell you as a family what me and my wife do. We do give to parachurch entities by our conviction. We, we as a couple have some convictions that will probably be different from a lot of your convictions. And we give, and we give deeply to that. But the majority, the lion's share of our giving goes to Legacy Church. Because this is my storehouse. You shepherd me. You, you're connected to me. This is how I'm connected to the city. This is how I'm connected to the world. So, as we see something like this, and I've done the good, as good a job as I know to put the scriptures before and make them alive in 2023, it does give us room to repent, right? And here's my caution as we try to finish this sermon here. My caution is this. Before you get calloused, with our interpretation of the word here, which could be easy to do. This is the number one thing I teach where people bristle up and they bow up and all of a sudden they went to seminary and they know so much more, right, when it comes to finances. If that's you, I want you to look at your own heart before you get too calloused. The angriest people I bump into are the ones that feel most indicted by this because they can't find a workaround with the scriptures that I've given them. They feel indicted. It makes them angry. This is not a battle you're having with me. It's a battle you're having with the scriptures. You have to square your shoulders with that. 
What I want you to see here is that the Macedonians are begging to give, the Corinthians are hesitating to give, and the biggest difference is gospel comprehension. Gospel comprehension. They just saw their finances differently. Listen, if you're struggling with your finances, your giving's real spotty, it's splotchy, it's all over the map, you're not proud of it, you don't really think about it, let me tell you something. God could not be more excited about you. You simply cannot shake his adoration off of you. <laughs> in fact, you could take everything I've said and punch the lead on it, get in the car, and cuss me all the way to Gus's fried chicken. You could do that, and hear me now, God does not love you any less. You're free. You're free to not give a dollar. It doesn't affect your salvation if you are saved. But let me tell you, friend, you are also free to grow as a robust disciple and shake off this power grip that money has on our lives. It does not have to grip your life. There is freedom when it comes to money. There's big freedom. We're free to grow. God is an excellent owner, and he gave us the means to give. So when I wrote this, and as I sit before this, just like I'm asking you to, I have to repent. It's so easy for us to find excuses. It's so easy for us to go just autopilot, to set something, just to click it and forget it, and not even think about what we're giving or why we're giving it. It's so easy for us to do this. And it's even easier to require money to play a role in our life it was never meant to play, and that is the one of Savior. Money does a lot of good things. It does not make a good Jesus. Not make a good Jesus. So there's room for us to repent. And listen, if you're here and you are far from Christ, you're probably like, oh my gosh, of all the weeks to come, I came when the guy talked about, I knew they only talked about money. I knew it, you know. If that's you or if you're watching online right now, I, I know I have not had to work very hard to convince you that money has a tight grip. I haven't had to convince you of that. We're on the same page. I haven't had to convince you that there's just not much of it. Regardless of whether or not you see Jesus as a Savior, regardless of whether you see Jesus as a Savior, you know money is not. Money has let you down. It has promised you that it would be there for you, and it just wasn't. It has promised you freedom, and it has not given you any. It has promised you identity, and it has ripped you off. You know that. Again, I don't have to convince you of that. If you're honest with yourself, you know this. It's good to know that the gospel is a story with many angles to it because that's how beautiful it is. And one of those angles is the story of wealth and poverty, which Paul did such a great job of here. God who was wealthy impoverished himself to do what? To bring us wealth. Does that mean money? No, not at all. It's position and placement. It's belonging. It's belonging. His impoverishing of himself brings us the wealth of family of being residents in a different kingdom, of approval, of safety, of comfort, of joy, of peace. There's so much for us to celebrate. But if you are in here and you are struggling with who God is, struggling with who Christ is, you're struggling with money, you're struggling with all of this, I would love to talk to you afterward. But what I'd love for you to do is consider the gospel as a story of what God has done to meet your needs, 